Every time I watch that, I'm not going to lie, it moves me. Every time I see the image of those hands grasping those stones, white-knuckled, clenched hard, and to see them let go, it's moving. Why is it moving? Because as we know, we can walk into a church a church service in the worship of our good God who's shown us so much mercy with a Bible in one hand and then an invisible rock in the other. Today we're going to walk through a passage that is very, very insightful into the kingdom of God breaking forth into our real world, into our space and time. We're going to see people healed miraculously, supernaturally, But in the end, this passage is not just about Jesus healing someone. It's not just about the paralysis of an invalid, but it's about the paralysis of legalism. Right after Jesus performs an amazing miracle, he is confronted with the religious establishment. He is confronted with Christless religion. And this is a turning point. This today, this passage, this chapter starts the drumbeat that leads us to the cross. Today, this study, this chapter, this passage, we will see the religious establishment and their bloodthirsty desire to extinguish the momentum of Christ's movement, to contaminate the power of Christ's message, And to see his followers, his sheep, his flock scatter, intensify. The drumbeat for his life begins today. We will see that Jesus Christ is going to have over and over again, culminating and leading to the cross, altercations and confrontations with people that have long since left God behind in their religion. People that claim to know God, people that claim to represent God, and yet people that have no love for God or for God's people. Now, it's very, very easy, very, very tempting to approach passages like this and uh, approach it only intellectual, to approach it only historically and not to see ourselves not only as the invalid, the lame person, the paralyzed person who needed Jesus Christ to give him life and health and a new start, but to also understand, friends, listen, there's a paralysis that goes much deeper and is much more debilitating than even 38 years of being lame and unable to walk. That paralysis is something that every church and every Christian has to fight against. The paralysis of legalism. The paralysis of getting so comfortable and so content in our self-dependency. So comfortable and so content in our self-righteousness that somewhere along the line, whereas we used to celebrate the reality that we are, yes, sinners, but we are loved by God. 
that Jesus Christ has come and lived and died and rose again because I know I could not save myself. We are flooded and filled with his mercy. And at some point along the way, we have been comfortable and content with not Christianity and our first love, Christ, but churchianity and maintaining man-made traditions. Is this a subtle trap for every single Christian in every single church? Absolutely. One of the litmus tests we're going to have right now is as we study this passage, as we teach it, and I hope as we receive it and believe it, are we thinking of ourselves or are we thinking of the person next to us? Are we thinking, my goodness, I really wish my judgmental mother was here because she needed to hear this. And the irony, of course, is what? We're judging our judgmental mother without even hearing what our Heavenly Father has to say. No, none of us wake up saying, I want to be a legalist. You understand that? Like legalism, you ever been to a legalistic church? It's just joyless. Like there's no joy there. There's no love there. You can feel it as soon as you walk into the room. It's like bad decorations and furnishings. Like there's something just off here. It's insipid, it's subtle, and yet it creeps into every single church. And that's why God speaks to it through his word and through his son so often. This is a turning point. In John chapter 1, we see that Jesus is introduced. In John chapters 2 through 4, we see curiosity about his message and his miracles. And now, when we come to John chapter 5, we see confrontation. Because people have become so content to follow God without God. None of us wakes up wanting to be legalists. None of us who used to be prodigals. Remember that story? A good father who allows his son to leave his estate, not only allows his son to leave the estate, but actually gives him his inheritance. And then he squanders it in a distant land. He squanders it with wild living, with women. And then a famine comes, and this prodigal son who spent all of his father's lavish wealth and love now is destitute, is craving to eat the slop of pigs. He says, maybe I'll return home and maybe my father will show me mercy and maybe I could be a slave in his estate. The son returns and the son comes home and what happens? The father runs out to him. Envision this. Have we forgotten this? He runs out to him. His son who once was blind but now can see. His son who once was lost but now is found. His son who once was dead is now alive and he envelops him in his arms he loves him. He restores him. He kills the fatted calf for him, and he celebrates. One of the most tragic things in Christian life is when the prodigal becomes the Pharisee. Is when the prodigal turns into his cold, condescending, judgmental brother. How does this happen? It doesn't happen overnight. It's the slow progress, slow regress of choosing Christianity without Christ Jesus. I was down in the wonderful, glorious pride lands at our South Jersey yesterday. That's where I grew up, by the way. So yes, as you take that trip down the parkway and as you're praying the whole time, I know you pray more in the turnpike in the parkway than you do at church. That's all right. I do too. 
and you pass through that magical forest called the Pinelands, and you arrive in the wonderful land of South Jersey, where both Melissa and I went to high school. She celebrated her 20th high school reunion yesterday. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to your high school reunion, but it's a very fascinating thing where people who are nearly 40 years old are all of a sudden acting like they're 17 again. And not only that, but they're also reverting back to the gossip and reverting back to that kind of like, oh my gosh, did you hear this about that and this person about, and look over here, that's her, can you believe that's her? And look, at, oh my gosh, can you? So we were sitting around a table, this was all happening last night. And of course, whenever I meet someone new, especially at these kind of events, I love when they hear two things about us. First, that we have five kids. Their jaw drops and they say, what, are you crazy? And we say, yes, crazy in love. <laughs> Thank you very much. And then secondly, I love it when they ask me what I do for a living. I just get a smile on my face because I know all of a sudden they're going to want to go talk to that high school buddy that they never really liked, was annoying, was probably a bully. But they'd much rather talk to that person than talk to a pastor. What do you do? I'm a pastor. Oh, I got to Somebody's over here. I got to go. <laughs> Morality police are here. We're sitting around the table last night, and of course, all Melissa's old friends are talking about and updating each other on what's going on, not only with the people in the room, but also the people that aren't in the room, and then tragically, the people that have had a really rough go of it over the last 20 years, people that probably started out in school, in high school, filled with dreams of grandeur, being told about their potential, being told about how the world's going to be their oyster, being told about how there is no place, no mountain that's too high for them to climb. And now, their families are broken, their marriages are broken, they're jobless, discouraged, some of them completely ensnared in addictions, and some of them even dead because of their vices. It's a sobering, sobering reality. When you start to hear about your high school friends who you remember filled with such life and such vigor, now, poof, gone! One person said at the table last night, no one ever wakes up wanting to be an addict. No one ever wakes up wanting to have no freedom and no choice because of a thousand bad decisions. In fact, addicts and addictions rob us of our joy and our freedom. No, the truth is, in the same way that nobody wakes up or nobody as a high school graduate says, I don't even want to see my 20-year reunion. I'm going to get addicted to this. It's going to rob me of my health, my family, and my life. No one ever, ever says, I want to be a legalist one day. You see, that's why legalism is so uh, subtle. It's because those who claim to see are blind. Lord have mercy. Those who claim to see are blinded to their blindness. Jesus said this in another gospel, Matthew chapter 15. Listen, friends. Jesus says this. Speaking and rebuking the Pharisees, he said, so for the sake of your tradition, you make void the word of God. You see, Jesus is interested in truth, right? Just because the Bible is against legalism and that ism and what that means per se, it's a modern vernacular, is to say when man adds God, when man adds its law to God's law and man is no longer concerned with God's glory but their own, when that happens, it's not to say that God doesn't care about truth. No, he is the truth. 
Everything he says and does and speaks is truth. Jesus is not condemning them for their lack of truth. He's condemning them because they love themselves and their traditions more than the truth. He says, you hypocrites. Surely Isaiah prophesied of you when he said, the people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. I know some of us can relate to this. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You see, this is what happens when we add to God's laws. We're going to see in a moment. When we say, all right, we can't trust God's people with God's law, so we're going to add our law to God's law, then we can't tell where God's law stops and our law begins, and people don't know the difference. People will come from perhaps fundamentalist churches, and they will claim to know the law. They will claim to know the law better than you know the law. But in the end, if it is without the Holy Spirit and without the gospel of Jesus Christ, if there's no joy and no love in their hearts, somewhere along the line, they got really, really excited about traditions. I know many of us grew up Catholic, right? Friends, I love Catholics, right? I have nothing against Catholics. But this is a real challenge with Rome. It's a real challenge. Because over and over again in my conversations, and I used to be there, I was there with you. God's word speaks something. Jesus Christ himself speaks something, does something. There's the truth. There's the reality. There's our plumb line. There's our litmus test. It's all about Jesus. I, yeah, I, I don't really care. I have my traditions. I'm Catholic. This is what we do. Lord have mercy. So this is a challenge, isn't it? This makes us a little uncomfortable, uneasy, because every single church, whatever tradition you're from, we're not harping on one. The reason why I'm taking this very serious with us today is because I know that this is a subtle threat for us, and we want to be spared from it. So let's look at John chapter 5, verse 1, and we will see that, yes, this passage is about healing. This passage is inadvertently about the Sabbath, but primarily, this is about the paralysis of legalism. This is the word of the Lord, the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 1. After this, after, remember from John 4, Jesus healed the nobleman, the royal nobleman's son in Canaan. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda which have five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to them, said to him, listen, this is so important. Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going to another, steps down before me. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, I love this, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. He took up his bed and walked. Pause right there. Once again, we are reminded that this is what the kingdom of God looks like. This is what was prophesied in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, that the Messiah would come and that this anointed king would usher in God's kingdom 
and in God's kingdom, justice and righteousness would reign supreme. In this kingdom, there would be true, lasting peace, and people would come to know healing and salvation. Jesus Christ, the king, is ushering in the kingdom, and people are getting healed. Now, of course, we live in between when Christ purchased our salvation, when he began his kingdom, and when Christ returns to usher in his kingdom finally and forever. But this is evidence, once again, that when we see Jesus multiplying the bread and the fish, right, he has authority over creation. When we see Jesus walking on water, he has authority over the elements. When we see Jesus speaking to Lazarus, come out, Jesus has authority over death itself. Jesus just says the word to a man who has been paralyzed for 38 years and instantly he's healed. Is our Jesus that big? Praise God. Now let's think about that. 38 years. Friends, I don't even like being hurt or sick for 38 minutes. Right? I'm a big wimp. 38 years. Now, 38 years is a long time. I mean, some of you aren't even 38 years, 38 years old. It's your whole life, right? 38 years where you've been sitting probably in the same spot. People see you. They know you. They notice you. You're part of the furnishings. You're part of the surroundings. You're part of this area with these colonnades, this pool, and the sheep gate. So Jesus comes in as a good shepherd, and he sees one of his sheep that is lame, an invalid who is probably paralyzed, and he has compassion about him. You know why this man was waiting by the pool? There was a certain mythology, and some of your Bible translations might even refer to it, that angels supernaturally came, and if you stirred the water and you descended into water, you would be healed. So this man is still hoping for healing even after 38 years. But I love this. Jesus breaks his categories of mythology and reveals that he is the ultimate reality. He comes in and heals and does what no tradition and no mythology can do. He gives this man who's been healed or who's been suffering for 38 years healing. Friends, why does he ask him, do you want to be healed? Why does he do that? Of course he does, right? 38 years, 38 years not only of the physical pain. Literally, he needs somebody to move him from point A to point B, which is probably only a couple feet away. He's that needy. But 38 years, friends, think of it, of utterly being dependent upon others. 38 years of the shame. 38 years of being your identity wrapped up in being an invalid and being lame. So when Jesus asks, do you want to be healed? It's a piercing, penetrating question because there are many people that, yes, they can walk. They're not paralyzed. They're not lame. And yet here is Christ offering healing, offering forgiveness, offering true peace, true purpose, everlasting life. He says to us, do you want to get healed? And we say, not today. No, I'm miserable. Don't get me wrong. Things aren't great. Don't get me wrong. I'm stressed out. I'm taxed. I'm empty inside. Don't get me wrong. Oh, but not not today, Jesus. I don't want to get healed today. Why? Because I still want to be in control. I still think I could save myself. I still think this, this, and this 
It's going to turn everything around. Oh, yes. When Jesus asked this man if he wants to be well, it is an insight into his heart because we can get stuck. We can get stuck in our identity, whether it be a lame invalid or whether it be somebody that's just always relying on the work of others. This man, when he picks up his mat and he walks, you know what this is going to lead to? Him finding a job and working. Him showing ownership for his own life now. We can get so wrapped up in being the one that always receives. Jesus says, are you ready? Are you ready to get up and walk? Are you ready to be healed and to start giving? Some people say no. No. Even though I'm miserable, even though I'm in pain, I don't want to be healed. Jesus heals the man and then there's an interesting conversation about what it means to heal on the Sabbath. Now, as we transition here, I want it to be very, very clear, friends, that this man was in this area for probably 38 years. All the Jewish religious establishment knew this man, knew his name, knew his problems, knew his pain for decades. Friends, listen to me. What we're about to hear should sicken us because it's gross. It's really, really disturbing if we have ears to hear. This man is supernaturally healed. We pick up in the latter part of verse 9. Now that day was the Sabbath. Can we all say the Sabbath? Good job, church. Verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, oh mercy, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. I'm in verse 14, all eyes on scripture. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, exclamation point. Listen to this. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. What we see in this passage is an interesting phenomenon. If you study the Old Testament, you'll see that there's not too many instances or examples where the Old Testament people of God in Israel were beholden and behaving as they should, beholden to God's law and adhering to it. Very few examples where they're actually implementing the Passover. Very few, if any, examples of the Jubilee. And yes, plenty of examples of idolatry and breaking the Sabbath. So friends, here's what's going on right now as we jump from Old Testament to New. There's a revival going on. But it's not a revival fueled by God's Spirit. It's a revival that's a facade of man-centered moralism. They're hoping that if they obey God's law and add to God's law and make sure everyone does, that God will deliver them from their tyranny under Rome. So you have a whole generation of scribes and religious leaders, Pharisees, that are adding to God's law. 
And when you jump from Old Testament to New and all of these conversations and all of these discussions and all of these arguments about Sabbath, about Sabbath rest, and you think to yourself, friends, what? When did the Sabbath become so much work? This is what legalism does. God gives us a good gift. He says, okay, God created six days on the seventh he rested. I want you to follow that same pattern for your good. Not only for your good, but for my glory. Friends, listen, if we're willing to rest, that means we're willing to what? Trust. Only one person gets his to-do list done every day. We get that, workaholics? It's God. When we are willing to step back and say, all right, I'm resting today. Even though all of my enemies, all of my competitors, everybody else is working, I'm going to trust. And in trusting, what happens? That frees us from our job becoming our God. Not too many amens right now. We know it's true. We know it's true. Our jobs so easily become our gods. So rest is a great practical way, not only for you to spend time with your family, not only to come to church, not only to get that physical rest, but for you to be even a more productive citizen, a more productive Christian, because you're finding your peace as you trust in Christ. But what's happening here is so much more than that. You see, what happened was from the Old Testament to the New is that you have a generation of rabbinical teachers that have added to God's law. In fact, in this case, they added 39 commandments to the Sabbath law, and the last and the 39th of the commandments was you shall not carry anything on the Sabbath, on that Saturday, the, 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 uh, the Sabbath rest day. So now it's turned into you can't even carry your mat. Friends, why is this scandalous? Why is this shocking? Because these same Jewish leaders, and Jesus, of course, is not against Jews. He is a Jew. All of his disciples are Jew. He first came to save the Jews. But it's the Jewish establishment that he's confronting. Friends, listen, this is what happens. This is how it works. They see this man healed. He's walking. The same man that's been sitting in the same spot for 38 years, he's walking, he's healed, it's a miracle, and what do they do? Oh, gross! Why are you carrying that mat? It's against our rules. Oh my gosh. I mean, this should really make our skin crawl, because they don't care about him. And they don't care about God. They care about control. They care about their vanity, and it's gross. And Lord, help us if it's creeping up in our hearts. Lord, help us if it's creeping up in our church. Whenever we go to the doctor, the doctor gives us a physical, right? Do we get physical still? Do people do this? Open your mouth, stick out your tongue. Blood pressure, I always get a little woozy. Uses the little uh, triangle-shaped thing, hits your knee. Whoop, there goes your knee. We're going to do a spiritual, okay? Church, can we do this? We're going to go to spiritual, and we're going to ask ourselves, not if the person sitting next to us is judgmental or bitter. We're going to ask ourselves about the ironies of legalism and ask if it applies to us. If we see these symptoms in our lives, in our marriages, with our children, with our friends, and in our churches. Here it is. Number one. Ironically, legalism is godless. Legalism replaces a personal God with impersonal rules and demands. 
Legalism's greatest goal is not to obey God. Legalists are not great at obeying God. Legalists are less interested in you obeying God's command and more interested in you obeying their commands. Legalism does not produce spiritual maturity, but actually prevents it. Ironically and tragically, morality serves the same function for the legalist that immorality serves for the pleasure seeker. Both are an expression of self-reliance and self-assertion. Did you get that? Like even the pleasure seeker and the legalists are really in the end only about themselves. Legalism claims to see clearer than you, but they are actually blind. Blind to their blindness, blind, blind to their joyless, loveless bitterness. Legalism does not lead to liberty or to love. It is an addition to the gospel and not subtraction. And any addition to the gospel is actually subtraction. Legalists love to point out the shortcomings of others, Lord have mercy, but will be filled with rage when anyone dares to point out one of their shortcomings. Legalists seek places of authority in the local church, but refuse to surrender to the authority of King Jesus in their own personal lives. Legalists enjoy the presence of other legalists. Judges are always looking for more jurors. Legalists enjoy the presence of other legalists while there is someone else to gossip and condescend about. But when they run out of other people to judge and gossip about, they start to eat each other alive. If you've ever seen legalists fight, whoo, fire. Legalists love to boast to people about what they know, but do not know how to genuinely love people. Legalism is a cancer in the local church as it focuses our gaze not on pleasing God, but on pleasing men, focuses our gaze not on reaching the lost, but on maintaining our man-made traditions, focuses our gaze not on loving each other, but on controlling each other. True or false? Here's good news. God loves us. He loves us seekers and skeptics, pleasure seekers. Friends, he loves us legalists too. But he takes us so serious. If we're joyless in our faith, if it's been a long time since our hearts have truly been broken by the mercy of God's grace. Friends, with all the humility that I can muster, using the lamp and the light of God's word on my own heart first, you might really be in danger of falling into this very subtle and pervasive trap. When's the last time you were able to breathe deep of God's grace? When's the last time you saw each other with grace-healed eyes? And you didn't come in a church thinking this is wrong, this is wrong, he's wrong, she's wrong, he's wrong. That's another brother and sister of Christ. We're all jacked up sinners. What does it mean for me to love him because Christ loved me? That's why the cross of Christ is our hope. The one judge, the one who is truly the only holy one, died for us so that we could live for him, so that his mercy could change our heart of stone to a heart of flesh. Amen?
Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you, God, for your word. Your word that comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. Your word that welcomes in the outcast and the sinner, but also helps to see, helps us to see our own blindness as legalists. Lord Jesus, we need you today. We need you real bad. We need you and your mercy to remind us that we're just children. We need you and your mercy to rebuke us of our our hypocrisy. We need you and your mercy to help us to relinquish our control to want to try and fix everybody without wanting to fix ourselves. So God, I hope it's not just me praying, but I hope if there are some repentant legalists in this room that we would look and fix our eyes and gaze not only on Jesus, but on Christ crucified. Lord, have mercy, the one perfect Son of God, the only true victim, bleeding, dying, pouring out his life because he came to seek and to save the lost. He had every right to judge us and to condemn us. And he comes speaking truth, serving us, healing us, and dying for us. Mercy, forgive us, God, for making Christianity about us and about our silly traditions. Help us come back to our first love. Break our hearts for what breaks yours and give us grace-healed eyes. In this moment, we encourage you, I encourage you to look to Christ. If you're tired of living a joyless Christianity, look to Christ. If you want more love for your husband, your wife, your kids, look to Christ. Remember that we're all equal at the foot of the cross, and there's mercy even for us. Would you pray to him now in your own way with your own words? Father, forgive us. Father, please fill us. Father, help us turn from ourselves, our sin, and our pride, and return to you. We pray this in the good name of our Savior and King, Jesus Christ. Amen. Friends, let's rise to our feet, shall we?